right, everybody, this is Ellen Weatherford, and I'm here as usual with Just the Zoo of Us, your favorite animal review podcast, and this week I'm here with a new friend. This is Kelly Diamond, and say hello, Kelly. Hello. So, Kelly, you have a really interesting animal to talk about this week that I'm really excited about because I don't know anything about it, and I doubt that a lot of our listeners do either, because I feel like this is kind of a... Kind of a unique little guy, right? Sort of. Um, (laughs) So goby fishes in general are actually like the most speciose group of fishes in the whole world. Wow. Um, Like there's over like 1800 different species of them. There's a bunch of these guys, but most of them live in the ocean full time. And what like the group that I study are special because they actually climb waterfalls. Um, And so there's a much smaller number of them that do that. Um, but they're, they're still gobies and they use their like sucker fins to climb waterfalls, which makes them really, really cool. That is really cool. I love that. I'm enjoying the visual image it's giving me because it's quite funny. <laughs> but so before we get into these, you, you introduced them to me as waterfall climbing gobies. Is that like the accepted common name for them? So that's like a, a description of like a whole group of gobies that are technically like their technical term would be like amphidromous which means that they are born in the freshwater but they grow up in the salt water in the ocean and then they go back to freshwater to live as adults and so it's that like transition between where they develop as babies and where they live as adults that allows them to like climb waterfalls and so there's groups of these species that have like independently evolved the ability to climb waterfalls all over the world so you can find different species of waterfall climbing gobies in Hawaii, which is where I studied them, in the tropics like Dominica and the Caribbean. You find them in Japan. You can find them off the coast of Africa. You can find them all over the place. Um, and so what what what's really unique is so all gobies are like defined by the fact that they have this fused pelvic fin. So like they're basically what the equivalent of the legs of the fish would be are fused together on all gobies. That's like what defines goby fishes. Um, most of the fish that are in this group, they use it to like stick to rocks because they live in like coral reefs and in areas where there's a lot of wave action. So they want to make sure that they can like stick to the reef so that they don't like get blown away basically (laughs) in the surf. But over and over and over again, um, these fishes have developed ways to go into freshwater habitats and they use this suction cup to get to higher and higher areas of the stream and over time, they actually like went from just like kind of like sticking to rocks to actually using that sucker and like these little motions of their body to actually move vertically up these like crazy waterfalls. And some of them are better at it than others. But like we're talking, someone equated it to like in our groups that did the math and figured out that if you were a goby fish, a baby goby fish going from the ocean to the adult habitat and you climbed the equivalent of like the highest waterfall that they climb it would be the equivalent of you like the average sized person climbing the empire state building with the suction cup attached to your chest (laughs) nothing else (laughs) that is a serious case of playing with the hand you are dealt yes (laughs) (laughs) and so like there's two kinds of climbing so all of the gobies have that suction cup where their legs should be but there's another a subgroup that um, is the group that I worked with that also has a suction cup where their mouth should be. And so they actually like inchworm up the waterfall. So we call those inching climbers and all the other climbers, which are sort of like the group that happened first 
um, and is more widespread power burst climbers because they'll stick and then they'll wiggle and they'll stick and then they'll wiggle. And it's kind of like the best dance move <laughs> possible. Like you, you stand still and then you wiggle a little bit and you stand still and then you wiggle a little bit. At least that's how I dance. I imagine that you're like, there's a hop involved. Yeah. Like you hop and wiggle and hop and wiggle. Pretty much. Yeah. That's, that's a great way to describe it. Cause there is a point at which like, they're kind of like jumping for it and hoping that they get to a spot where they can reattach. Whereas the inching climbers are always attached to the waterfall. So like the inching climbers kind of, they're like sort of like the tortoise. They go a lot slower, but they don't take as many breaks because they're constantly attached. So they can kind of take their time. Whereas the power burst or the, the hop and wiggle um, <laughs> climbers, they like kind of have to like stop and take a break and like catch their breath a little bit. Um, and then they'll, they'll keep going. So like if you watch them climb, um, which is one of the experiments that we did a lot, you would get like the power burst climber would like, go, 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 stop and rest. And then the instrument would like go and like catch up and then get a little bit ahead and the power burster would go. And eventually they ended up like reaching the top about the same time but just very different strategies. Oh, that's interesting. So it's it's not necessarily that one is like better than the other. No, just different ways of doing it. <laughs> oh, that's really cool. Let's kind of take a quick break before we go too much further into the gobies themselves. And I would like it if you could take a quick second to kind of introduce yourself and talk a little bit about how you got into your work with these gobies. Yeah, so I am a first-generation college student, um, and so I didn't really know that you could do research for a job um, until I started at the University of Central Florida uh, for my undergraduate degree. And I joined the camping club and the, the faculty advisor needed someone to like basically do dishes in his lab. And he had some money to support a student. I was the only biologist in the club. So it just so happened to get the job. Um, and then I sort of fell in love with it and like found ways to like be in the lab as much as possible. So eventually I got put on a project where we were studying the relationships between different pit vipers, which are a group of snakes. And I did a couple of different projects there where um, I would do some DNA testing and um, try and figure out how they're related to each other using DNA, but also using characteristics of the snake's actual like body shape and like how many scales they have where. And we'd use all these different like characters that we could collect from the, like the snakes themselves or they were pictures of snakes. I didn't actually get to handle like venomous snakes. So like, don't worry. Um, <laughs> and, um, and so I really loved working with the animals and like how their shape influences, how they're related to each other and that kind of thing. So when I was finishing up my degree, I was trying to figure out like, I really enjoy doing research, but phylogenetics, which is what the field of like determining how things are related to each other is called. I really like that was not my jam. <laughs> A lot of it is moving very small amounts of liquid from one tiny tube to another and hoping that you made like the right chemical combination to like get the results that you wanted. And it was all like really exciting at the macro level, like at the upper level and like explaining it to other people was really fun. But the day to day was like so boring to me. And I'm like, I'm glad people enjoy doing this. This is not my jam. I cannot do this. <laughs> So I wanted to work more on the side of like, how does the shape of the animals influence like how they actual function in their real lives, like on a more current timeline. And so I ended up um, contacting uh, Dr. Richard Loeb at Clemson University, um, who studied these waterfall climbing gobies. He is in a field called evolutionary biomechanics. Um, so biomechanics is basically 
like how things move and how they're shaped and how that affects how they move. Basically, it's a combination of biology and physics and math, which is not what I thought it was <laughs> when I started. I uh, got a real horrible wake-up call when I realized that I should have been paying way more attention in like geometry and take a physics class in high school because I never did that. Oh, no, you're you're breaking my heart as a person who failed physics. <laughs> oh, I did too. It took me... A solid two years to get through organic chemistry and physics. Like I was not good at them at all. But when you put physics in the context of animals, all of a sudden it's like, oh, that makes so much sense. And I went from like knowing nothing to like, oh, I totally like, it was like one of those like click moments of like, oh, that's what that meant. Why? <laughs> You should have put this in the textbook. <laughs> yeah. And so like before textbooks weren't a thing, that was the point where I'm like, okay, my future career is going to be writing textbooks that like make sense to people who like animals. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so I actually went to work with Rick Loeb to study what I really wanted to study. What was I, what I was interested in at the time is like, I grew up in Florida um, watching these like tadpoles grow in the drainage ditches by my house growing up. And then like, I would always like collect them and watch them develop. And I thought it was so cool that like, they could jump, whether it was like sand or dirt or anything like that. So I developed this whole project on like, how frogs jump on different substrates and how that affects their like biomechanics and that kind of stuff. And then like, I got to Clemson and like started writing everything up. And, and my professor goes, yeah, we don't have the equipment to be able to actually test that question. I just thought it was like cool that you could come up with a question. So come up with a different one. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the bait and switch. So I, I spent a little bit like trying to come up with other questions. And eventually I was reading, you know, rereading a bunch of his papers that he'd already published on these weird fish that climb waterfalls. And one of the things about these fish is in order to get to the waterfall, they have to swim past predator infested water. So there was this idea that the shape of your body would be like specialized to either evade the predators or climb the waterfalls. And you see like slight variations in the fish that are good at climbing are not so good at evading predators. I was like, but you, you haven't actually tested that. Um, have you? And he's like, well, we tried a couple of times, but we've never successfully tested that. So I was like, master's thesis. <laughs> <laughs> so my master's thesis was actually like testing what happens to the fish before they climb. And so we went out to Hawaii and we built this fish tank that you could flow water through called a flow tank. And then we basically like made the fish escape, quote unquote, from our hypothetical predator, which was, um, you know, the medical syringes that they use to give little kids medicine. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the oral syringe. Yeah. Yeah. We took one of those and we connected it to some like airline tubing for like fish tanks and just like clear plastic tubing basically. And then we duct taped that to some barbecue skewers that we stole from the ho the condo that we were living in at the time. And then we basically made a homemade squirt gun. So you'd suck the water up into the syringe, point it at the fish, squirt the fish, and then the fish would escape. Okay. This is some DIY. <laughs> and so we did that in a bunch of different directions and we tested all kinds of like questions. But basically my entire master's thesis was getting to Hawaii, building a homemade squirt gun and squirting a bunch of fish <laughs> and seeing what, and then we recorded it with a high speed video camera so that we could use that video to collect things like how fast did the fish escape in what direction did the fish escape? Were they more likely to escape if we tacked them in the same direction the water was flowing or in a different direction and things like that. So that was kind of cool. 
And like at the end, sort of our conclusion was that the gobies have a quote unquote like blind spot. So as they're, they're basically swimming from the ocean upstream to the waterfall. And so the water is going in the opposite direction that they're trying to swim. And so if you attacked them in the same direction as the water, they couldn't tell if that was a predator attacking them or if it was the water. So we found that like they do have a blind spot. And then like later in my PhD, I actually had a couple of um, undergrad students go back and test to see, did the predators take advantage of that? So we filmed some predators in the natural environment and it turns out they don't. <laughs> so oh. um, this it's a good strategy for the gobies to not respond because they just don't get attacked from that direction. I don't know if it's like, so the next step would be like, why aren't the predators attacking from that direction? Is it hard for them to attack that way or is there something else going on? So that's sort of an avenue that other students are going to be pursuing now that I've left. Um, and most recently, starting in January, I left, I got my PhD and um, started a postdoc position at Seattle Children's Research Institute, where I'm doing something completely different, but I love it. And so we're using techniques from math and physics still. Um, so machine learning now, um, which is like this crazy artificial intelligence nonsense that I'm still learning and trying to use that to better understand, like, can we teach computers to like, if we give it a, an image of a fish, we want the computer to tell us what fish it is. And then we want it to be able to dissect it and say like, here's the fish. It has these fins and it has these characteristics. And that's how we know it's this particular fish. Um, so it's, it's kind of crazy because we have like team members all over the country and, it's a really fun project, but very different than gobies right now. <laughs> I still love gobies, and I'm still sort of finishing up some of the projects on them. Okay. All right. That's awesome. I, it sounds like you've taken some interesting twists and turns, a varied sort of journey. <laughs> yeah. I tell people, like, science careers are having the right conversation with the right person at the right time and, and being willing to take a chance and go do something that you've never done before because that's what science is. And it sounds like you also identified like a knowledge gap, seeing like, oh, this is something we don't know. You were able to zero in on it, be like, well, hold on, if we don't know, let's find out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's sort of my favorite part of the whole scientific process is is coming up with MacGyvering ways to come up with uh, ways to answer questions that we don't know, like sort of coming up with the experimental design, especially when you're working in the field with live animals, you kind of have to have like, a lot of plans and be willing to like ditch them all at the last minute and go with something else and kind of be creative. And so we thought that the originally that the, these goby fish would be like use their vision to detect predators. So we used all kinds of visual stimuluses to try and get them to like do an fish do what's called an escape response. It's a very stereotypical behavior where they basically try and swim in the opposite direction that they're attacked, where they, they basically like bend their body in a sea and then swim in the opposite direction that they were going. And so we thought, okay, it's a visual stimulus. So we had like things dropping in the tank that like wouldn't hit the fish, but like would make them scared. Like they'd be able to see it. And then we had stuff like outside of the tank that we like threw at the tank to see like, well, maybe it has to be like further away or something. So we tried all these different techniques to like get them to be scared enough to do this response. We spent like a week doing nothing but trying to get them to respond. I was like, what about a squirt gun? And so we tried that and then it worked. And that was my entire master's thesis. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, I can only imagine the frustration of just repeatedly throwing things at a fish tank. Like, come on, please. Yeah. yeah. And like, there's like some things where you're like, after you did it, you're like, we would have never been able to get that to work again anyway. But you're just so desperate. You're like, please, something work. Oh, no. I, but like, that's where the science comes in, right? You're like, well, this isn't working. I'm going to have to try a different angle. <laughs> Yeah. And so like, think about how we can get this to work. Yeah. And so like, I love it because you would sit there and we'd sort of talk about like, well, maybe, okay, obviously they're not using their vision. And then once we got the squirt gun working, we kind of like went back and looked and like, well, these guys have, I don't know if you've ever seen like a mud skipper that if you watch like, you know, planet earth, the fish that like jump up in the mud and stuff, their eyes are on the top of their head. Well, gobies, mud skippers are also a type of goby. So our gobies also, their eyes are kind of on the top of their head. So it's no wonder that they weren't using vision to detect predators that were on the bottom of the like stream that would be coming up attacking because they wouldn't have been able to see them anyway. But like, we didn't think about that in the moment. It was just sort of like a, no one's ever done this before. So why isn't it working? This is how everybody else scares fish. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's funny. But that's, that's interesting. Like stumbling across something else like that, like after testing it and being like, oh, well, of course, because it's something to do with their morphology. Like, oh yeah. Now it makes sense. But only in retrospect, like, yeah. only after trying things and looking back, like your hindsight is twenty twenty, unlike the vision of the gobies. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's actually a good um, sort of transition into our first rating. So if this is your first time listening to our show, we review animals and we rate them out of 10 in three categories, the first of which is effectiveness. Effectiveness we define as physical adaptations that are built in to the body of the animal that let it do a good job of the things that it's trying to do. So what do you give these waterfall climbing gobies for effectiveness? I'd have to give them a 10 out of 10 out of effectiveness. I mean, how many animals have, well, actually there are other animals that have suction cups on their bodies, but not too many others that climb waterfalls. So I think that the suction cups kind of give them enough to qualify as like perfect score for effectiveness. They're pretty effective at what they do. Yeah. And you know, when you were describing, you know, what they're doing that you you mentioned that they're kind of, they're climbing against the waterfall, right? The water's flowing against them. How does the flow of the water like affect how good they are at climbing up the waterfall? Yeah, so um, we actually build artificial waterfalls to study them so that we can film them and figure out how they're climbing and things like that. And so our artificial waterfall, um, one of them is just plexiglass because we want to see the belly of the fish on their sucker to see how their sucker is working. Um, And they will literally climb up plexiglass as long as you put water flowing down the plexiglass. But another one um, is like this like rain gutter. regular rain gutter that we just like put some like spray adhesive and some sand to like make it a little bit more texturized so that kind of lets us see like where in the water stream are they actually climbing and so when we look at those videos you can see that when they're actually moving they kind of are on the outer edge of the flow so they kind of find pathways that are just like on the outside corner of the flow they're not like in the middle of the heaviest part of the waterfall But then when they want to take a break, they'll kind of like go a little bit more into the water so they can breathe. Actually, like you can see them moving their gills up and down as they like kind of rest in the water. So they're they're sort of like just on the edge of the waterfall. And so when they're moving, a lot of times they actually leave like the waterfall part and will just be on like the wet rocks part. But then when they rest, they'll go back into the waterfall a little bit and just like kind of stick really well. Okay, so the flow of the water is actually like part of their respiratory process? Yeah, um, we have not fully quantified that, but it is something that like if you sit there and watch them, you can kind of watch them like 
they don't really breathe when they're when they're moving but when they stop they'll like you know pump their opercula which is the part that like moves their gills to to breathe that reminds me a lot of like you said the mud skipper you know once they're out of the water you can see them kind of like gasping Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the mud skippers are a different kind of goby, but they're also gobies. So it's kind of cool to see the difference between those different subgroups. Yeah, so you you mentioned earlier that that most gobies live in saltwater, and those are the gobies that I think I'm most familiar with, mostly because those are what you'll see in fish tanks. Yep, yep. I feel like you'll see lots of little gobies in fish tanks. I guess, like, what did these gobies have, like, in common with, with those gobies? You mentioned that they have the fused pelvic, is it pelvic? Bone? Yeah, so it's their pelvic fins, um, which are, like, the equivalent of legs. And so the what defines, like, gobies as a group is just, like, that their pelvic fins are fused together. And a lot of them form, like, suction cups a lot. Like, it's something that I'm really interested in, and a lot of people are really interested in, like, quantifying, like, that shape, because you can kind of see, like, the best climbers, like those power burst climbers that have to really rely on their suction cup, it looks like, you know, you went out and bought a suction cup and just glued it to this fish. But then there's other fish that like aren't the strongest climbers. They can only climb like really small waterfalls or they, they don't tend to climb as well. And their fins are less like cupped and more just like fused together. And so it's more like they're probably relying on like some kind of like tension um, like surface tension to climb, but that's, there's some like skeletal morphology. There's, there's a great scientist, um, Chris Thacker at, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on what institution she's in California. I can't remember her ex- actual institution. She studies Gobi evolution, go Gobi phylogenetics. So she knows like way more than I do. Um, and there's other people that study Gobi phylogenetics as well that could probably answer that question better than me. Uh, but as far as like similarities, like all Gobis kind of have the same basic body shape, and they're all basically tiny fish that live on the bottom of the water. So they kind of look like little tubes with fins. And I don't know, there's not that much to a goby. They're kind of tiny. Um, but some of them are more colorful than others, especially a lot of gobies have sexual dimorphism. So the males will be more colorful and more flashy than the females. And so that happens both in the marine and the uh, freshwater environments as well. But as far as like other things that kind of unite the two the groups, besides like overall just like derpy body shape <laughs> and the fused <laughs> pelvic fins, that's about it. So what do these gobies eat? Um, I know you mentioned that they have predators that they need to look out for, but what do they eat? Yeah, so um, the gobies that I study will eat eat all kinds of different things depending on the species. So there's one species, my main species that I work on, it's called O'opu nopili in Hawaiian, um, or Cyceopter simpsoni, the one who climbs. It's probably the most common, it's the inching climber of the island. And they have that special suction. We think that maybe the reason that they evolved that special inching climbing um, is because they're diatom specialists. Diatoms are these like microscopic organisms that live in the algae. And so as adults, they basically take their upper lip and they like scrape it on the algae, but then they spit out the algae and they just eat the diatoms. Like if you've ever seen a little kid only want to eat the marshmallows out of cereal. And so they'll like somehow figure out a way to like spit out the cereal and keep the marshmallows. (laughs) That's basically what these gobies do (laughs) with the diatoms and the algae. They don't want the algae. They just want the diatoms. And so they need these special scraping structures. They have like special teeth, tiny, tiny little teeth. And like these special muscles that help like project their upper jaw out and scrape it back. And we think that because they have that specialized structure, 
that that allowed them to sort of do that extra suction cup in their juvenile stage for the climbing the waterfall. Okay. So I guess, can you kind of describe the, what the suction cup is? Is it like special types of fins or like, how did the suction cup kind of come about on their body? The regular suction cup or the mouth suction cup? The regular one that lets them like climb. Yeah, so there's a lot of fish um, that use their fins, the fins that are on the bottom of their body to like stick to the bottom of the water, especially when you have fish that live in streams or shallow water where there's a lot of motion. And so when when you have that like those fins already in place, basically as the gobies move from the ocean water into the stream water, they use that like those fins to help them stabilize and not get swept out to the ocean when like flash floods would happen. So eventually that suction cup that was used to like stay in place and like not get swept out to the ocean allowed them to like move up vertical surfaces and like over thousands and thousands of years, they got to be able to actually climb up waterfalls. Like what what's actually really cool is, so as I mentioned, like the babies live out in the ocean and the adults live out in the stream. They actually need their rainy season puts like lots of water out into the ocean and they need that like fast flowing water to get their eggs from the fresh water out into the marine environment. And then we think that the babies are actually, when they're ready to go back to the adult habitat, like the developed fish that have spent like their time in the ocean, the way that they find the waterfall is actually that fresh water that is coming out in those lots of like flash floods and this high fresh water in the rainy season is what's attracting the fish that are out in the ocean to the fresh water. And that's how they find the streams to come back. So like, Flash floods are actually like how gobies like their whole life cycle revolves around flash floods, which is crazy and scary a little bit. But it's really, really cool how even in in, like a lot of native Hawaiian folklore, there's there's a lot of like goby and how they're they're tied to both the reproductive aspect of the culture and also how their culture is like tied to the rainy season. So it's, it's really cool to learn about them and the culture that they're tied to in Hawaii. Oh, that is really interesting because they're taking a lot of cues from their environment. Is it that they're like detecting the salinity of the water to let them know that it's time to go? Yeah, that's open area of research. We don't know for sure, but we do know that like when a flash flood happens, you have like a migrate, uh, what we call like a migration event or a migration pulse. Well, you'll have like a flash flood will happen. And then like two to three days later, you'll have this like big pulse of of baby fish going from the ocean to the upstream habitat. And you'll have like thousands and thousands and thousands of fish migrating upstream. And it's crazy. I mean, my fish are like an inch and a half long, so they're not very big. So it's not like a salmon run or anything like that. You'd have to know what you were looking for to see them. But like you can take, you know, those like green fishing nets that they have at like the pet stores. You just take one of those and like scrape up the waterfall and have like 200 fish in one of those. Oh, man. (laughs) Yeah, it's really crazy. When they come in, they come in hard. (laughs) Yeah, they're not playing around. They got places to go. Yeah. So are the babies doing the same suction thing or or like how soon does that method develop? Yeah, so the babies are the main ones that are doing it. So the adults, like the suction cup doesn't grow at the same rate as the rest of the fish grows. And so eventually they get to a size as adults, even though they're still pretty tiny, where like their suction cup doesn't really hold them onto the waterfall that well. So they kind of can't climb anymore. Um, So it's really, they come in from the ocean after a flash flood, and then they have about 48 hours where they are in like, we call it a juvenile phase. 
And that's the phase where they can climb up the waterfall. So it, it differs by species and by like location, but generally you're going to have like the baby fish are actually the ones that do most of the climbing. And those are the ones that we test most of the time. Okay. So this is not necessarily something that they're like doing constantly throughout their life. It's something that they like kind of do once to get where they're going. And then they're like, all right, this is good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then they'll like kind of set up a territory and live the rest of their lives up in the freshwater. They can live five or so years, we think. We don't really know because they're really hard to keep in captivity. I guess if they're needing that like shifting salinity and they're needing that like flowing water, it, w- it might be kind of hard to replicate that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the diatoms are pretty hard to grow as well. So. Oh, yeah. Geez. <laughs> like I because a lot of times you hear about fish eating algae, but they don't even want the algae, right? Oh. They're, they're like, no. No, it's like a very specific microorganism that lives on this very specific algae, this very specific part of the world. (laughs) That's called specialization, baby. (laughs) Yep. But it was my excuse to have to go to Hawaii once a year for (laughs) studying. That was a strategic move on your part. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry, guys. My uh, study species is only found in Hawaii. Sorry. So I'm just going to... And they, they, the peak of the migration is like the end of February to the beginning of March was like the worst part of the winter for for South Carolina. So my now husband used to give me so much like grief for leaving and like you leave in like the worst, snowiest, grossest part of the winter and then you came back and it's just spring and you miss the worst parts of it. Be like, sorry, that's science, baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the glamorous career. I think that's interesting. So you mentioned that their their eyes are on top of their head, which makes sense if they're if they're chilling out on the bottom, right? Nothing's going to be underneath them, so they they don't need to see underneath them so much. But does that limit their eyesight in any way? The fact that their eyes are like kind of up on top of their head, like what effect does that have on their eyesight? We don't know, but uh, my advisor is actually like working on a collaboration right now to like look into the act- how the actual shape and position of their eyes would affect their field of view. So keep- stay tuned that probably oh. the next like, well, now that the COVID kind of ruined their field season for this year, they only got six days out of a full month long field season uh, before they had to come home. So oh. to be continued, but it is an active area that they're not myself, but other people in the field are pursuing. Because they're, you know, they're, if you think about like how fish eyes normally work, they're like made to work underwater, not out in the air. Um, And so there's like a whole nother like level of questions of like, not only just like, how do they see when their eyes are above their head in the water, but also like when they're climbing, can they see when they're climbing? Or are they using just like touch and feel of their fins? Um, Because their eyes are like, can be out of the water when they're climbing sometimes. Um, so that's something that like, like we're really interested in seeing like, how do they tell once they get on the waterfall where to go? Oh man. Yeah. That does bring up a whole new like set of questions when you think about like vision and how you're going to be seeing out of the water versus in the water, but it sounds like they're not necessarily spending all of their time out of the water. So it's probably not something that they need to like invest too highly in if it's something that they're only going to be experiencing for a small part of their life. Right. But it is, yeah, it's definitely very specific, but it's something that like we're definitely interested in. Do they actually have any specializations for that or not? We don't know. <laughs> oh, ooh, I like that. <laughs> I guess we'll see. Yep. So so this is a good kind of opportunity to look towards our next category that we rate animals on, which is ingenuity. 
In ingenuity, we define as kind of behavioral adaptations that animals have that let them like solve problems that they're encountering or figure out like clever strategies of doing things, whether it's evading prey or capturing whatever food that they eat. You know, so any anything that the animal is doing with its body to give it kind of a competitive edge or whatever. Um, so what do you give these gobies for ingenuity? That's hard because, you know, climbing is still gives them a lot of. Yeah points but um when they're not climbing everything else that they do is my entire dissertation was one big like nope after another (laughs) um and so I thought I had every like intention in watching these guys in the in the streams that like oh they're really smart I think that they can do this and every test that I came up with like they're real dumb they're real dumb fish. But you believed in them. I believed in them, <laughs> um, but they really do just, like, not care about... They really don't... I mean, I think that once... So, in Hawaii, at least, once they get above the waterfall, it's like Gobi Nirvana. There's no predators. There's plenty of space. There's plenty of food. It's like prime habitat. So, there's not a whole lot of pressure for them, like, to adapt to anything because if they can just book it to the waterfall... They're good. But in other islands, like even in the like Hawaiian archipelago, like in Kauai, there's a lot of erosion because that's a much older island. So the waterfalls are like miles and miles and miles inland. And so they have to like be able to like avoid predators for like days and days and days before they can get to a waterfall to try and climb it. So I we tested like, do those fish have better predator evasion instincts and like morphology and behavior than fish that are from Hawaii? And the answer was no. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's still an answer. (laughs) um, But we think that that a lot of that has to do with, you know, I mentioned that they they kind of develop in the ocean. So while they're in the ocean, they don't necessarily just stay around their same island. There was a study done back in 2015 and 2016 that found out that like it's really based off of like where are the ocean currents going? That's where those fish are going to end up. So it's not necessarily that like there's no opportunity for them to like adapt to a specific environment because they're just moving around too much. So there's a lot more questions there. And it's a lot more complicated than that, but basically they suck at everything that's not climbing waterfalls. So I, I think I have to give them like a seven because climbing waterfalls is still pretty ingenious, but like that's their only thing. <laughs> they are hyper specialized. Yeah. They're like we got the one thing, yeah. the one thing that we do and we're really good at it. But yeah. that's it. Yeah. And then on other islands, like in La, there's an island off the coast of Madagascar called La Réunion. It's basically France's version of Hawaii. And they also have almost the same identical like structure. They have inching climbers, they have power burst climbers, but they also have predators. They have these creepy eels that also climb waterfalls and are horrifying. Oh my gosh. And so climbing waterfalls no longer gets you safe anymore. And those guys were the worst at doing my evasion test. Like they didn't even try to escape from the predator. And we're like, what the heck? Why? <laughs> oh no. And they're the ones that have to worry about it. Yeah. Their strategy is basically like, if they find me, they can eat me. It's fine. It's one of those like strength in numbers things. It's yeah. like, listen, there's so many of us. We'll just let them have a few. Yeah, pretty much. Just let them have their fill and then leave the rest of us to go make it to uh, Gobi heaven. Yeah, it was crazy. Um, so I definitely think like they can't give as high of a score, but I still think climbing waterfalls is pretty ingenious. So I guess like when you zoom out evolutionarily, 
that's a pretty brilliant thing to come up with. Yeah. I'll give them credit for that. (laughs) That's pretty good. You mentioned earlier that the flow of the water plays into their sort of like the way that they're attracting mates. Yeah. What's that all about? Like, what are they, uh, how are they dating? (laughs) Yeah. So basically these guys, not every species, but a lot of them, the males will guard a rock and that's their rock and they defend that rock. And underneath that rock is where the female will lay her eggs. So they're very territorial, but in order to attract females to their rock, um, one, they grow patches of algae that the diatoms like to live on. But the other thing that they do is they'll go to like in some species, especially in Japan, they'll go to like the fastest flow of the stream and they'll take their dorsal fin, which is the fin on the top of their back and kind of, like raise it up and down as fast as they can and hold it as long as they can up in the really strong stream water and be like, look, I'm so macho. I can hold my fin up against the water for so long. And then you'll have like males in the same kind of general area, like competing. So they'll like flag, it's called flagging because on that fin, there's like an extra long part of the fin that like extends out. So when they do this, like sort of raising the fin, it looks like they're waving a flag. Um, And so they'll flag at each other and then at the female and they'll try and chase each other off and like flag some more. Um, And it's really hysterical because there was, I've only seen it in the wild once, but like there was this one big Oopu that had his rock. And what's weird is like, they can somehow tell when they transition from like being a quote unquote, like sub adult to being an adult, because there are gobies everywhere in this one particular area of the stream. And the little baby fish were allowed to eat on this big male's rock. No problem. But like, the ones that they didn't look any difference in size to me, but they apparently looked very different in size to this big male fish. He would chase them off and flag <laughs> at them. And then he'd like go back to his female and like flag at her. It was really, really cool. Um, just like sit there with like my little like snorkel and mask in my wetsuit, just like sit there and watch it. And like, I was supposed to be collecting fish at that point, And I like completely failed. I was like, I'm sorry, I didn't get any fish because I was just sitting there watching them. <laughs> So I had to go back the next day and get more fish, but it was really cool. <laughs> I like that he had to go back to his girlfriend. Like, did you see that? You yeah. saw what I did? You saw how cool it was? <laughs> oh, that's so funny. And it's like, it's not something that they have to do. They're just doing it to prove to each other they can. <laughs> yeah. And so, well, the female will lay her eggs under the rock and which the male she thinks is like the best male. So it is like they are competing for you know, mates, but it's definitely the frat partiest way of doing things. <laughs> <laughs> you you also said that they they grow like patches of algae. Like to what extent are they encouraging the growth of this algae? Like are they like tending to it? Like you yeah. went to like a garden or is it just like a passive thing that happens? Yeah. So they, they like will sit there and like feed on one part and then like feed on another part and they kinda like make sure so a lot of the streams especially in Hawaii there's not a whole lot of regulation on like what you know pesticides can be dumped into the stream or what like there's very little regulation unfortunately at like what gets dumped in the stream and so right now there's like this nasty gross there's two kinds of algae there's the kind of algae that's small uh that the diatoms grow on and then there's this like nasty sludgy so it like kind of looks like in like South Carolina, there's like the red clay. The algae actually looks like like streams of red clay. It's really gross. <laughs> and when you accidentally touch it, it's like, ah, when you're Slimy, in the stream. gross. <laughs> um, but they will like actively like clean that off and like 
eat and like sort of like maintain their little patch of algae so the diatoms can grow and only let the females that they want to mate with eat their diatoms. Oh, they got to impress their girlfriend. <laughs> yeah. And it's like kind of funny because when they eat, it's like the cutest but strangest thing because like they only move their front lip. So it's slightly disturbing, but adorable at the same time. Like, like those little teacup chihuahuas where like their eyes are bigger than their head. Like that <laughs> kind of cute. <laughs> where you're like, you're cute, but also are you okay? <laughs> I don't know. It's like the weirdest thing to like watch. Like basically like if you try and just like hold your lower jaw steady and only move your upper jaw (laughs) back and forth, that's what it looks like. But it's really weird. I'm thinking of maybe a taper yeah. or something like that. That maybe like doing a lot with its nose slash upper lip. Yeah. So like they're just like scraping with that upper jaw and like the lower jaw just doesn't really do much. So it's just kind of fun to like, it's cute. I swear it's cute. But it's very, like, hard to describe why it's cute. <laughs> Maybe, like, it's it's just, like, a major overbite. Yeah, and I think it's because they do it so fast, too. It's like, boop, 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 boop. Oh, that does sound really cute. I would maybe grant them a little bit of credit for ingenuity for tending to their algae garden and just kind of it it sounds like they they've maybe like focused more of their behavioral attention on finding and securing a mate. Yes, <laughs> maybe not so sure. much with the predator invasion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think I'm just biased cuz I that's what like my whole dissertation was predator evasion. Mm-hmm. So I was like, no, but yes. Um, so maybe I'll give them an eight for ingenuity because they do have a lot going on for them on the other side of the waterfall. Just channeling your disappointment in their <laughs> inability to <laughs> figure out how to run away from things. Below the waterfall, they're the popcorn of the ecosystem for sure. Easy pickings. You can literally, we did like in-stream video of like, just to get an idea. And you literally would watch the predators pick them off like popcorn, just like poop, poop. I mean, if it's right there, right? Like, that's an easy meal right there. That's, like, low energy expenditure. Yeah, the predators, for sure, they just sit there and eat fish. (laughs) (laughs) No challenge whatsoever. They're they're living life on easy mode. Yep. Well, that, since you mentioned how cute their eating habits are, that, I think, brings us to aesthetics, uh, our final category for rating animals. And so um, I don't think I've gotten a good like view of what these gobies look like. So the image I have in my head is kind of like similar to like a a mud skipper or something like that. That's a Um, good image. Yeah. What would you give these gobies for aesthetics? Um, so they're not the most exciting fish in the world to look at if you don't have a really good close up view of them. Um, I think that like, they are very iridescent when you especially the pregnant females, they have these like, iridescent patches on their sides that like when they're pregnant they they also change color and so when they're pregnant they can actually change the color to make them look like a male or a female depending on like if they're like stressed out or not and i think that like when you look at like a fish like a picture of a real close-up image of, a, of one of these guys they're like absolutely gorgeous because you can see all the little iridescent patches and you can actually see like a little bit transparent so you can see like a lot of like the stuff going on on the inside as a biologist i think it's really cool um, kind of like glass frogs but um, on the other end of it I can see how like it is just a little dinky kind of minnowy looking fish and so like I think I'd have to like kind of like seven or eight ish okay because um, they, right. they are there are some species like the um, there's one species called Antipes con color that the front half of the males um, is black and the back half is like Clemson orange 
they are like bright neon orange. Um, and so like, there are some really pretty fish out there. Um, but if you don't, if you are looking at, if you're just like in the stream and like looking at them in the stream, you're, they look like little brown fish that aren't that exciting. So like, just appreciate like the complexity of them. I'd say I'll, I'll give them an eight. I think that some people might argue against giving them points for being transparent so that you can see all their gross <laughs> insides and inner workings, but they're not the ones on the microphone right now. <laughs> so they're just going to have to deal with it. Well, they're not like see-through to where like you can't see like their poop or anything like that. It's more just like you can see like where their digestive system is and like where their heart is beating. And you can actually see like the patch of fluid that like helps them stick to stuff like in the actual sucker. There's like blood that flows in and out of the sucker that you can see, which is like super cool to like see how all the inner it, it's like a robot fish, basically. <laughs> Does that make your job easier so that you can see what's going on inside them without having to like cut them open or or oh, for sure. it does? Yeah. So I I'm a big proponent of like use the fewest number of species possible. I'm definitely a bleeding heart. Like there's a reason I don't work with live animals anymore. I work with computers because dissections I love doing dissections don't get me wrong but like sacrificing animals to do dissections was 100% the worst part of my job and so when we could release all of those species all of those individuals that we collected data on like we only had to take the minimum number that we would actually go and CT scan them so we could like get really good fine detailed images and look at their inner workings on a digital side so I definitely think that there was a huge advantage and like I didn't have to take every fish. I could take like just a small number and then use the cameras to sort of figure out where everything was in, in relation to that. So that was really helpful. When they were pregnant, could you like see the babies? I couldn't see like the babies because they lay eggs and they're really, really tiny eggs. But you could see like how close she was to laying eggs because she would go from being like this like pale white on her belly to like this like almost pink color. It's kind of like a lot of geckos get in Florida. Um, so it was kind of cool to like be able to see what was, we never tried to collect pregnant females, but when you're there during certain times of the year, like you can't help it. It's like all of the fish are pregnant. Like there is no chance of getting a not pregnant female. They're all pregnant. Um, so it was kind of interesting. And what was weird, which I did not expect, one of like the craziest things that like came out of one of our, the last experiments actually that I did as a graduate student was we were trying to um, get high-speed video of how they detached from the waterfall because we know how they attach really well. Like that's been studied a lot, um, but we don't know how they detach. Is it like the whole body or is it something specific with the, the structure itself? And so we just went out and collected a bunch of, of adults that we thought might climb. And the only ones we could get to climb were the pregnant females, no matter what species. Only pregnant females tried to climb. And I don't know if it was like a mom instinct of like, I've got to get back to my rock to, you know, whatever. Or if it was just like they were more motivated in some way. I'm not sure. But it was like kind of crazy how that worked. And definitely something that I'm curious about. I can't believe I didn't think to ask this earlier. But what is the like likelihood that when the fish like detaches that like, do they ever, I don't know if miss is the right oh, word. Oh, yeah, they miss. Do they ever like not fully reattach? Oh, yeah. They fall off all the time. 
Um, yeah, no, they're, well, what's also like when they're climbing in nature, if like a bird flies by or if we walk past like the part that they're climbing, they'll just jump off and like start over. Um, (laughs) from an energy perspective, that doesn't make much sense. The bridges that we collect for the record, we collect fish from this bridge that's like three feet tall. So it's not like the most energy expensive bridge. But if you like, if your shadow passes over, you'll just see like massive numbers of fish just like jumping off of the waterfall. So falling for them isn't a big issue because they're so small that actually like falling from that height doesn't hurt them at all. It's like how like spiders can fall from like a tree and they're like, it's nothing. Yeah. (laughs) They don't take fall damage, man. That's, that's pretty cool. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I feel like every time I see one, I'm just like in my head, imagining it going, wee. (laughs) I wonder if they do it for fun. (laughs) I don't think they do it for fun, but definitely doesn't hurt them too much. I would imagine that if you gave them, if you already gave them kind of a low score for ingenuity, I don't know if fun is high up on the list of priorities. (laughs) But that's really cool. So this is a really interesting fish that I didn't really like know existed before you brought it to my attention. Yeah, definitely send you. I've got some like images of like them climbing on the plexiglass so you can actually like see them climbing that I can send you. That would be awesome. That would be awesome for me to use as the cover for the episode. I would like that. And I think that while I, you know, while I have a lot of appreciation for the popular, like the charismatic, you know, animals that get a lot of attention, um, we try to balance that out with maybe some of the underappreciated animals that like, there's so much like you, you get into this type of goby that climbs waterfalls, you know, that like nobody ever, I feel like nobody really talks about. (laughs) Yes. I am on a mission to share this lovely fish with the rest of the world. (laughs) Well, the PR campaign starts here. (laughs) Waterfall climbing goby 2020. There we go. (laughs) The only good thing to come out of this year. (laughs) You know, (laughs) we're getting there. Well, so this has been really exciting and I really appreciate you taking this time to talk to us today. Um, So what are you, are there any projects that you're working on right now or what do you want people to keep an eye on for right now? So I'm just starting my postdoc and just sort of like learning basically a whole new field for me. So I don't have any, I mean, my dissertation papers are coming out as far as like the science side, but I try and do um, Skype a scientist or talk to, I really love science communication coming from the world where like, I didn't know that you could get paid to do this kind of science. I love talking to adults and kids of any age group that is interested in science, animal science or anything in particular and talking about like, you know, how how do you do this um, for a living? Because I wish I had met somebody earlier in life that like I could just say like, how did you do this? This is so cool. Um, And I've had so many people like push me in the right direction along the way or be able to like ask really like dumb questions like how how do I get to do what you do? Um, that I just like blunt, like the one good thing of coming from the background I come from is like, I have no shame at asking like really dumb questions. And that's sort of what I like encouraging. So like, you know, I'll give you my contact information. And like, if anybody out there wants to talk science or has any questions about waterfall climbing gobies or any other animals, if I don't know the answer, I have a whole group of scientists on Twitter. I can, I'm sure we can find somebody to answer your, your animal questions. So, um, my Twitter handle is diamond KMG. Um, so Kelly Marie Genevieve diamond is my full name. And so diamond KMG, um, and that's also my GitHub. If you're into coding at all, I have some code up there from the projects that I'm working on now. And my email is, 
kellymgdiamond at gmail.com. So feel free to reach out on any of those if anybody has any questions about anything. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate, you know, not only sharing your knowledge about this awesome Gobi, but just for making yourself available for people that maybe want to get a little bit more engaged and maybe want to learn about what it's like to spend their um, winters in Hawaii. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to figure out how I keep doing that right now. <laughs> <laughs> that's a sweet gig, man. Like, if, it is. hey, if that's what it takes to get people interested in animal science, like, just uh, really hype up that field work. Yeah, the field work is definitely exhausting and challenging and super fun. But, you know, those are, it's not as glorious as uh, people think it is, but it is absolutely amazing. Um, I spend most of my time in Hawaii either in the equivalent of a carport um, doing experiments and trying to come up with ways to get the fish to do what I want them to do or what I think they, they should be doing, but then they're not. So I have to figure out why um, or face down in a stream that is um, 60 degrees Fahrenheit, which doesn't sound that cold. But when you're in it for two hours, it's very cold. I wear a lot of wetsuits. <laughs> it does sound fun, though. It like is super fun. Yeah it doesn't sound like a boring job. <laughs> no. And like, what's really cool is when you do field work, you get to interact with people who live in the area you're doing field work. So whether that's, you know, in South Carolina, where I've done some common like projects with turtles and people are like, what are you doing trying to pull this turtle out of this pond to, you know, working in Hawaii and having a bunch of like local kids come up and be like, what are you doing? And I was like, if you say the word Gobi to a local, they're not going to know what the heck you're talking about. So you have to like learn all of the Hawaiian words that represent these fish, which I love because like, I want to know all about not, not necessarily just the biology of the species I work with, but their cultural importance too. And so these, these Oopu are really culturally important. And so like getting to know the history and like learning about, you know, Oh, I learned about those in school and here's the, you know, there's a hula for the, the Oopu and like, everything like that. So it's like been really cool, not just from a biology perspective, from, but from the human side as well. It's so funny that like what at a glance seems like an unassuming and like you said, kind of like a dinky little tiny brown fish, but opens up all these doors to learning all this other awesome stuff. So like there's a whole world of relevance and uh, fascination that comes from just a tiny, tiny little, little brown fish. Yeah. Yeah. They're super cool. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much for all of this, um, for all the time that you spent with us today. Uh, we will catch up with you later. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.